And everybody, and uh, great to see you. Welcome to River Glen. Uh, welcome everybody here in Waukesha, everybody in Pewaukee. I know we've got a bunch of people watching online. Great to have you. Good to see you. Thanks so much for joining us for uh, church uh, today. Are you guys excited about Christmas? You looking forward to Christmas? Yeah. Yeah, it's coming up. Coming here soon. I, I think out of all the holidays that we celebrate each year, we anticipate, we look forward to uh, Christmas more than any others. Maybe you anticipate just a, just a family gathering for Christmas. Maybe you anticipate a great Christmas meal. Maybe you're just looking, for, looking forward to a day off and uh, you can't wait. Or maybe you're like me or like most kids, big and small, and you really, really look forward to opening Christmas uh, gifts. Can you remember when you were a little kid, I mean, how much excitement and anticipation you felt about opening those Christmas gifts. I asked our kids, we got three kids, and I asked them if they remember. This week I asked them, do they remember any gifts when they were little that they were just super excited about? And they really hoped that they would get. One of our sons uh, mentioned this one right here, the uh, Hot Wheels Octoblast. Uh, he uh, prayed for this every night. He was afraid he wouldn't get it, but his prayers got answered. We got it for him. And you know what? This may be the most awesome Christmas gift. Of, of all. I mean, it's got Hot Wheels. You, you race these Hot Wheels cars through the twisted tentacles of an octopus. And uh, it was awesome. I had fun uh, playing with it, too. Another year, they mentioned uh, that they uh, remember getting the uh, Nintendo GameCube. They really, really wanted this gift. And they were kind of surprised when they uh, opened it. Uh, one of our sons actually told us this gift confirmed his belief in Santa. <laughs> because he thought there's no way my parents would ever spend that much money. Santa was very generous uh, that year to them. They also mentioned this gift, the portable DVD player. They love this thing. They got to watch movies and the car rides, long trips that we took down south to visit uh, family. But then there was the one disappointing gift. You ever had a gift you really looked forward to, you really wanted, you didn't get it? Never saw it under the tree. One year, our daughter Taylor, when she was really little, she wanted the Easy Bake Oven. Yeah, one of her friends had it, and she really wanted it too. But instead of the Easy Bake Oven, Grandma got her the uh, Chuck E. Cheese Pizza Factory. <laughs> and uh, Taylor was little. She acted like she enjoyed it, like she was excited when she opened it. But inside, she felt... Uh, disappointed. So we made some pizza. We made a pizza that night. You know, you make this little, little tiny little pizza and, you know, you shove it in the oven. The oven cooks it with a light bulb. Yeah. Uh, not very good pizza. That was the only pizza I think we actually made with the Chuck E. Cheese Pizza Factory. When it comes to Christmas gifts, sometimes you get what you hope for, sometimes you don't. But when it's, when it's small things like that, that's really not a big deal. But when it comes to hoping for bigger things in life, hope can be a dangerous thing. Hope can make us feel vulnerable and scared when it comes to bigger things in life. That's why we say things like this. We say, hey, we say, hey, don't get your hopes up. You know, maybe you're trying to get a new apartment or a new house. Don't get your hopes up. Or you apply for a new job. It's don't get your hopes up. We say that to try to minimize vulnerability, minimize fear. Because we know when we hope for something, I mean, it can lead to disappointment. It can be painful. It's been said that expectation is the root of all heartache. Hope can break your heart. But at the same time, I mean, we all 
we, we all want hope. We all need hope, right? I mean, hope, we're all hopers. Somebody said this. They said you can go three weeks without food. You can go three days without water. You can go three minutes without air. You can't go three seconds without hope. Hope is something that feels more important than oxygen uh, to us. But I also know, you know, life has a, a habit of throwing curveballs that we don't expect. And we, we oftentimes we find ourselves scrambling, feeling like we've lost hope. If you've got enough years behind you, you've gone through a season where you have felt hopelessness. And you, you really didn't see a way forward. You know, maybe, it was, maybe for you it was a season of depression. And you wondered if you would ever feel better. Maybe, maybe you lost a loved one and it left you feeling hopeless. Uh, maybe, you, maybe for you it's the end of a, a relationship or a marriage or... Maybe you had some deep conflict in your family or the loss of a job. Maybe, maybe for some of you sitting here right now, you know, you feel a sense of hopelessness right, right now, right today. And it's like a brick, you know, in the front of your mind or in the pit of your uh, stomach. And you're not sure how to move forward. Well, here's my goal for, for all of us, for you, me, for all of us uh, today. I want us to, to know and understand and experience a new sense of hope for the future, a hope for the future that changes our present. Today we continue this series. It's called BC. It stands for Before Christmas. And, and I know, you know, BC doesn't actually stand for uh, Before Christmas, but it's just kind of our clever way of, of, of talking about the Old Testament prophets who spoke about Jesus before Christmas. Before the first Christmas, God would use these special messengers to give guidance and direction to his people, prophets like Micah, Isaiah, and Malachi. But today we're going to talk about a message. God gave a prophet named Jeremiah. Almost around the year 627 BC, God comes to Jeremiah when he's only 16 years old. And God gives him this incredible assignment to serve as a, as a prophet. Here's what God said to him. I knew you before I formed you in your mother's womb. Uh, before you were born, I set you apart and appointed you as my prophet to the nations. Can you imagine how it would feel to have God come to you at the age of 16 and give you this incredible assignment? Well, uh, Jeremiah grows up. He fulfills this calling that God places on his life. But what you may not know about Jeremiah is that today we often refer to him as the weeping prophet. Yeah, because when, when he fulfilled this assignment God gave him, it often led him down a path of, of discouragement and disappointment. Here's a little bit of background on his story. Take a look. It was a thousand years before Christmas, around 930 B.C., Israel split into two kingdoms led mostly by bad kings. So God sent the prophets to speak words that were true, but nobody listened, and the kingdoms fell through. In 587, the prophet Jeremiah warned his city, the Babylonians have Jerusalem surrounded. It didn't look pretty, but the king doesn't believe it. He thinks they can still win. So he finds a jail cell for Jeremiah and proceeds to throw him in. He's called the weeping prophet. He was at the end of his rope. But even in a dark prison cell, God gives Jeremiah hope. There you go. Uh, Jeremiah was the weeping prophet. 
He actually gets thrown into prison by King Zedekiah for speaking the truth to God's people to try and, and help them. And so Jeremiah lives in this dark, damp, hopeless prison. But he writes some of the most powerful words of hope that our world has ever heard. Take a look at what he wrote in Jeremiah chapter 33. The day will come, uh, says the Lord, when I will do for Israel and Judah all the good things I have promised them. In those days and at the same time I will raise up a righteous descendant from King David's line. He will do what is just and right throughout the land. In that day Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will live in safety. And this will be its name. The Lord is our righteousness. God speaks through Jeremiah and he tells the people the better days are coming. God promises to raise up a savior, somebody who will rescue them, somebody who will come from the line of King David, the greatest king in the history of Israel, and will bring salvation and hope and, and peace, unlike anything the world has ever known. And at Christmas time, we celebrate the fulfillment of that prophecy. We celebrate the birth of the Savior. We, we read about his coming in Luke chapter 2. It starts out by saying, in, the, in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. It's 600 years now after the prophecy of Jeremiah. A Roman, the Roman emperor rules the world. And he uh, calls for a census that requires all the people to travel to their ancestral hometown to register. Uh, but, you know, they didn't have planes back then or, or Uber. It was not easy for the people uh, to do this. The story continues. So Joseph went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, uh, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. Mary and Joseph take this grueling trip. They go from Nazareth in the north to Bethlehem in the south, an 85-mile trip while Mary is very pregnant, riding on a donkey. And the reason they travel all the way to Bethlehem is because Joseph came from the ancestral line of David. Now, sometimes people will point something out. Remember uh, last week, if, if you're here, we talked about Isaiah's prophecy and the virgin birth. Sometimes people will point to that and they'll uh, say, Joseph wasn't the biological father of Jesus. And that is true. That is correct. I saw this illustration of it this week. It says, this. It says according to our test results, Joseph, you are not the father. <laughs> Maury Christmas. Yeah. It's true. It's, it's correct. Joseph was not the biological father, but God chose Joseph to be the earthly father figure for Jesus, which means that Jesus came from the ancestral line of David. So Joseph and Mary traveled to Bethlehem. Take a look at what happens next. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to a firstborn, her firstborn, a son. Jesus came as a baby that first Christmas to fulfill the prophecy from Jeremiah and to rescue his people. But I think sometimes we wrestle with, with this question. What does that really mean? What does it really mean that Jesus came to rescue his people? In order to really figure that out and understand what it means that he came to rescue us, we need to go back 600 years to that prophecy from Jeremiah. I want to highlight something Jeremiah said at the end of his prophecy. Maybe when we read it, it sounded confusing and you just kind of skipped over it, but it's really, really important for understanding who Jesus is and how he rescues us. At the end of the prophecy we read, Jeremiah said this, and uh, this will be its name, the Lord 
is our righteousness. Now, we don't use the word righteous very often or righteousness. And when we do, oftentimes we use it in a negative way. We'll say that somebody is acting self-righteous. They're acting holier than thou. But righteous is actually a very positive word. Any of you, have you seen this uh, chef on the, on the uh, Food Channel named Guy Fieri? Have you seen this guy? Yeah. He's from California. He talks like a surfer dude. He'll go to a, a restaurant, and if the food's really good, here's what he'll say. He'll say, that chicken is righteous. That barbecue is righteous. And, and, and what he means, it, that tastes perfect. That tastes great. Righteous is a very positive word. But in Scripture, it's not referring to food. It's a deeply relational word. A righteous person is someone who lives completely right with God. It means they're blameless, innocent, just. They do the right thing all the time. Somebody who never says or does or thinks anything that will create distance between themselves and God. But there's a big problem here. None of us are righteous. Paul talks about this in Romans 3. Look at what he says. There's no one righteous, not even one. Some of us here, maybe we get it right some of the time. Others of us might get it right most of the time. Nobody gets it right all the time. No one is righteous. And this is why the hope of what Jeremiah promises is so important. Because Jeremiah says, the one who will come and be called the Lord is whose righteousness? Our righteousness. See, Jesus is the one person who lived in history, who lived a perfect righteous life. He didn't say anything, do anything, or even think anything that caused any distance or any rift between himself and God the Father. He's the only righteous human being who ever walked the face of this planet. Here's the incredible reality at the core of the Christian faith. God made him, Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of, of God. Here's what this means. When you become a Christian, when you start following Jesus, there's actually a trade that takes place. There's an exchange that happens. Let's say this black box here represents you, and it represents your unrighteousness, your sin. And the white box here represents Jesus, his righteousness, his perfection. When you decide to start following Jesus, when you become a, a Christian, your unrighteousness, all your sin, past, present, and future, gets transferred over to Jesus on the cross. And he forgives all of it. That's great. But there's more. You're not left empty over here. There's a second transfer. The righteousness and perfection of Jesus gets transferred into your life so that you can stand before God righteous and pure. And, you know, we didn't earn it, obviously. We didn't work for it. We don't deserve it. It's a gift. And that's why Jeremiah said, the Lord is our righteousness. And so when God looks at you, he doesn't see your unrighteousness. He sees the righteousness of Jesus. And he welcomes you as his perfect son or daughter. It's the greatest trade you could ever make. In, in your life, in the, in the world. I've been uh, uh, reading about trades. I did a little reading on trades. Did you know this? That Some people think the greatest trade in the history of football involved the Green Bay Packers. 
Yeah, check this out. Back in 1992, uh, Ron Wolf started as general manager, and uh, uh, Brett Favre was actually quarterback for Atlanta Falcons, but he, he, he didn't play. He, he sat the bench as the third-string quarterback. I mean, he had really no future with the Falcons. No other teams were really interested in him. Uh, people questioned his health. He had a bad hip. Uh, they also questioned his maturity. I mean, he really had no hope as a quarterback in the NFL. But Ron Wolf saw potential in Brett Favre that nobody else saw. And he traded a draft pick to the Atlanta Falcons for Brett Favre. And, and you know the story. I mean, Brett Favre went on to win three NFL MVPs, one Super Bowl. He set a record for consecutive starts as an NFL uh, quarterback. He went into the Hall of Fame as one of the greatest quarterbacks to ever play the game. That was a great trade for the Packers and one of the most lopsided trades in football history. But that trade is nothing compared to this deal that God offers to everyone. God, here's what God says. God says, I'll make you a trade. You give me your unrighteousness, all your sin, and I will forgive that through Jesus on the cross. And, and I will give you the righteousness of Jesus as a gift. Charles Spurgeon uh, put it this way. Look at what he said. You stand before God as if you were Christ. Because Christ stood before God as if he were you. That is by far the most lopsided trade in all of history. That's the good news. And that's the reason for our hope and joy. And, and I know some of us struggle to really embrace and believe in, in that trade. It, it sounds too good because it's a free uh, gift. And because, you know, we look in the mirror, you know, we know all the things that we've done. We know all the ways that we've fallen short. We know the things that we think. But this is why Jesus came to be our righteousness. And God offers this deal to everyone. And this is the anchor of our hope. It changes hope. It changes the way we talk about hope. You know, oftentimes in our world, we use hope as a verb. Like we, you know, we wish for something, we hope for something, we might get it, we might not get it. You know, I hope I get the Easy Bake Oven for Christmas. I hope the Packers win the game tonight. I hope we get a white Christmas. But instead of using hope as a verb, we can use hope as a noun. Instead of I hope, we can say I have hope. I have hope because our hope is anchored to Jesus and what he's done for us. It's a sure thing. And that's why no matter what we face in life, we have hope because Jesus gives us his righteousness. And he makes us right with God now and, and forever. This means no matter how discouraged you know, I might feel about an area of my life, no matter how much I might struggle in some area of my life, no matter how many times I might stumble and fall and lose my way, I have hope. You have hope. We have hope in Jesus. A hope declares our acceptance as God's perfect son or daughter. A hope that promises that we're never alone. A hope that says uh, no matter how dark it might feel at night, morning uh, will come. A hope that leads us to a place where there's no more death, no more crying, no more pain. We have better days ahead because of Jesus. And if we take hold of it, if 
we take hold of that hope, it changes our present. It totally changes the way we view our circumstances and challenges right now. I uh, came across a, a, a legendary study that was done at John Hopkins University many, many uh, years ago. But before I tell you about this study, I've got to make a few disclaimers. Okay? You know it's going to be a good example if I have to make a few disclaimers. All right? Here's the first one. I want, I want you to know no animals were harmed in the writing of this message. And uh, number two, this study involves rats. And I think we would all agree rats are the worst. Next to cats, okay? Rats are really the worst. And then third, this study was done in the 1950s before, before they knew any better. Okay? All right? All right, so let's talk about this study. They did this experiment to illustrate the power of hope. The experiment involved rats and water and swimming. They wanted to see how long uh, a, a rat would uh, swim. And at first they put the rat in the water, and on average the rat lasted 10 minutes, about 10 minutes before giving up. Scientists found that when rats don't have any hope, they literally give up. But then they made a tweak to the experiment. They took the same kind of rats, put them in the water, but this time they would lift the rat for a, a couple seconds. They did this two or three times during the first 10 minutes. They would lift the rat just out of the water and put them back in just during the first 10 minutes. And check this out. After they did that, the rats didn't just swim 10 more minutes. The rats swam more than 60 hours. More than 60 hours just by introducing hope in the first 10 minutes. These rats swam more than 100 times longer because now they had the power of hope. And that's why it's so important for us to hold on tight to the hope that we have in, in Jesus. I know many times in my life when I have felt like I was drowning, God has picked me up and given me a glimpse of hope by reminding me that better days are coming. Sometimes he does that during a service like this. And it comes, it comes to me maybe through the lyrics of a song or a story or a video or a message. Sometimes it comes through the encouraging words of a friend. Sometimes it just comes from remembering Jesus is with me. He's for me. He'll never leave me or abandon me. And so for those of us here today who feel like our situation is hopeless... So for, for those of us who feel like God is nowhere to be found, for those of us who maybe feel angry, sad, or worried, I want to challenge you. Keep swimming. Keep swimming. Because we've got hope. And it's not just wishful thinking. We have hope anchored to the person and to the promises and to the power of, of Jesus. I, I love the way Henry Nouwen puts it. He says, I found it very important in my own life to try to let go of my wishes and instead to live in hope. I'm finding that when I choose to let go of my sometimes petty and superficial wishes and trust that my life is precious and meaningful in the eyes of God, something really new, something beyond my own expectations begins to happen for me. He says we can let go of our wishes and we can live in hope that is better and stronger than wishes and will never be taken away from us. Hope for the future that changes our present. And so today, if you find yourself feeling discouraged by the circumstances of life, if you've lost faith in your marriage, I want to challenge you 
Put your hope in Jesus. If you feel brokenhearted because of something that's happening in your life or happening in the lives of your kids, put your hope in Jesus. If you feel overwhelmed by loneliness, put your hope in Jesus. If you feel defeated by your struggles, better days are coming. If you feel tired from hitting dead ends, if you feel worn out from disappointments, better days are coming. There's always hope. There's always light in the darkness. There's always second chances. There's always hope because of Christmas. So put your hope in Jesus. Better days are coming. I want to show you a picture of something I think is just amazing, something incredible. Check this out. This is a picture of a, of a sequoia tree in California. Sequoias are the largest trees. Look how massive that trunk, the size of that trunk. Sequoias will grow up to 300 feet high, and they'll weigh as much as 3 million pounds. And get this, sequoias are not only the largest trees, they're actually the largest living things in the world. But you may not, you may not realize this, a, a, a sequoia, giant sequoia starts out as a tiny seed. Huge sequoia starts out as a seed about the size of an oatmeal flake. And that seed's got to get, got to get you know, planted, buried in the soil in order to grow into a sequoia. Just like your life. You know, maybe your life, maybe it feels dark. Right now, uh, maybe you feel uh, buried and hopeless, but actually you're not buried. You're planted like a seed so that you can grow into something really spectacular. And did you know sequoias are not destroyed by fire? Yeah, sequoias uh, have thick bark. They rise above the flames. And scientists have actually discovered that fires, that the sequoias rely on fires. And they will, they will actually have controlled fires around them to help them to grow. The, the heat and the heat from the fire causes the cones to dry out and crack open and release seeds onto the floor of, of the forest. Uh, the fire and the, and the ashes uh, soften and loosen the soil uh, so that the seeds can germinate and grow and, and fire clears the forest so that more sunshine uh, can reach the seeds. And help them to, to grow into a giant sequoia. And so it takes patience and perseverance through the seasons of life, through the good times and the bad times, for a tiny seed to grow into a sequoia. And the same is true for us. Jesus gives us a seed of hope, a seed of righteousness. But it takes patience and perseverance through the seasons of life, through the good times and the bad times for us to grow into something really spectacular. And think about this. Um, just, like, just like sequoia trees release seeds to grow more trees. God gives us hope, not just for ourselves. God gives us hope in Jesus to share that with other people. And that's, why, that's one of the reasons why we planned. We've got nine Christmas Eve services planned this year across both campuses to make it easier uh, for you to invite other people to come and hear the message of good news. Because Jesus wants to plant more seeds of hope in the lives of, of people and help them to grow into something really spectacular. In a moment, we're going to celebrate by receiving communion uh, together. And, and uh, this is open to everyone because Jesus invites everyone 
to follow him. And it's a powerful, beautiful reminder as we physically hold these, these symbols of the body and blood of Jesus as our hope, as our seed of hope. So I'm going to pray, and I want to invite you to take these symbols. Take them in. Invite the hope of Jesus into whatever season of life you find yourself in right now. And ask God to transform you from a seed to a sequoia. Let me uh, pray for us, and then you can take communion when you're ready. God, we thank you that, that you give us a hope that is outside of ourselves, a hope that isn't dependent on our on our best efforts. It's not dependent on our righteousness or our ability to do the right thing, but a hope that is solid and secure because it's locked onto what you've done for us. You promised that you promised to come and be our righteousness so that we could be made right with you. Thank you for fulfilling this promise by sending Jesus. Jesus, we, we thank you for paying the ultimate price by giving your life and suffering the consequences of what we deserve. But then on top of that, you gave us your righteousness so that we could live in hope and joy and freedom. We thank you and we receive the, the seed of hope and we ask you to grow us into a sequoia. And it's in Jesus' name we pray.